Hello and welcome to the Get Started with Film Photography podcast. My name is Graham Young. This is the second half of the Buying Your First Rangefinder episode. This particular one will concentrate on the holiday rangefinders, the compact holiday rangefinders that came out of mostly Japan in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. In the first half, I talked about what a rangefinder is and how they're different from SLRs. I also talked extensively about luxury interchangeable lens rangefinders. So if you are interested in those cameras, make sure that you have listened to that half of the episode. In this second half, I will be talking about fixed lens holiday rangefinders. They're compact rangefinders that were made, as I said, mostly in Japan in the 19. 50s through the 1970s. They're the precursors really to the point and shoot cameras that we got in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and the first uh, five years of this millennium. They were designed for family snapshot people. They were also designed for enthusiasts. And they were really, they really had an idea that a compact camera that you can have around your your neck for the for the day as you tour a city this is the type of camera that they were really looking for something that could be used in multiple lighting situations and could be used quickly and it really was not something that you had to spend a whole lot of time paying attention to if you weren't in the process of taking a picture. So there is a premium on small size, there's a premium on relatively fast lenses, and there's a premium on ease of use. So these cameras really were for the general populace as opposed to professional photographers during this time range. Now, I want to say again that these cameras that I'm going to be talking about will be rigid cameras. They're not going to be folding cameras. They're also cameras without interchangeable lenses. So they came with one fixed lens. Now, there's some advantages to that and there's some disadvantages. Obviously, the disadvantage is the major disadvantage is that you can't swap out a lens mid roll. You can't, I mean, if you're, you're, you've got the one lens, you can't change the lens midstream. However, the advantage is that these lenses were coupled very closely with whole systems, with a whole ecosystem of a camera that could take pictures. So they're, you know, they didn't have to build in a lot of features that were used only minimally uh, in other cameras, in interchangeable lens cameras. So these really usually were very, very competent cameras. Now, one thing I do want to say is I will be talking about folding cameras in future episodes. So I will actually cover folding cameras, but I'm going to cover them as kind of a group. Um, Also, one of the things that I want to point out is as I go through these camera systems, there are also cousins to the cameras that I will mention in this episode, in this part of the episode, that are not rangefinder cameras, but are viewfinder cameras that either have a fixed focal system, so you don't ever have to worry about focusing, 
or their cameras that, that have a zone focusing system. And a zone focusing system is you look at something, you say, hey, that's about 12 meters away. You set the lens to 12 meters, you take your picture, you're done, you move on. So um, these are all the cameras that I'll be talking about today actually have rangefinder systems built in. While there are many companies that made cameras in this range, the company that is perhaps most connected with this type of camera is Olympus. And Olympus started out in 1955. They released the Olympus 35S. At first, it had a 45mm f3.5 Zoico lens. And Zoico is the name that Olympus gives to their lens line. So uh, it, it's, it, it, it's if you hear Zoico, it's a... It's a lens for an Olympus. So, but it's printed on the outside of every one of those lenses. Like uh, Minolta had Rokor lenses, uh, for instance. Um, those are all, you know, the, you know, if it says Rokor, it's a Minolta built lens. Now, later models of the 35S had a 48 millimeter f 2.8 or 42 millimeter f 1.9. Then the 35S2 was released in 1957 and it included bright lines in the viewfinder. Now, bright lines show the edge of the frame, the frame that you are, are looking at, the frame, the edges of the picture that you are taking are indicated by bright frame lines in the viewfinder. Now, this camera had no light meter. It wasn't coupled. It wasn't uncoupled. It had no light meter. While this camera was not as sophisticated in appearance as the Leica or Contax copies then in production in Japan, it was every bit as competent in image making. The images coming out of these holiday rangefinder cameras were generally every bit as good as pictures coming out of the single-lens reflex professional cameras of the day. I really want to emphasize that point because many people think, you know, 35mm SLRs are professional cameras, rangefinders are amateur cameras, with the exception of maybe Leica and Contacts. Those are professional cameras. So uh, I, I do want to say, while these were not marketed at professionals, the quality of the images that these could get was was very high, and they should not be shunned in any way for that. Now, one of the other ways in which these cameras are different from the luxury interchangeable lens rangefinder cameras, besides not being able to interchange the lenses, is that the luxury interchangeable lens models had focal plane shutters, while almost all, in fact, actually, I'm going to say all, uh, probably there are a few that did have focal plane shutters, but I'm going to say all had leaf shutters. And I'm going to say that because I don't know of any focal plane shutter rangefinder cameras of this era. Now, um, I, let's talk a little bit about what the advantages of a leaf shutter are. A leaf shutter can sync with a flash at any speed because the leaf shutter opens from the center. This allows the full frame to be exposed almost immediately, and a focal plane shutter 
uses a curtain, and that's in contrast. So a focal plane shutter uses a curtain that moves across this frame horizontally or vertically. In order to make shorter exposures, the second shutter curtain follows the first before the first has actually moved all the way across. So there's this moving slit that goes across a focal plane shutter frame. In order for the flash to fill the full frame, neither curtain can be in front of the film. That means that the fastest shutter speed that can be used in a horizontally moved, the horizontally moving focal plane shutter is going to be about 1 60th of a second. In fact, my Nikon M2 has a little thing between the 1 30th of a second and the 1 60th of a second, and it's a little lightning bolt. And that little lightning bolt is indicating the flash sync speed, and that is 1 50th of a second. So they couldn't even get it to 1 60th of a second, and it's at 1 50th of a second. Now, vertically traveling focal plane shutters have the ability to sync at about 125. And they could also sync any speeds below, but the fastest it could sync is about 1 25th of a second. So, uh, and the reason for that is vertically traveling shutters, they have less distance because a 35 millimeter frame is wider than it is tall. So it had less distance to travel. There are some cameras out there that do have shutter syncs that are as fast as 1 250th of a second, but uh, they are very rare. Um, and they are those electronic controlled uh, cameras of of just the tail end of 35 millimeter SLR production. If you are, if you do have the flash set to go off and you are at say one 500th of a second, what you're going to get is part of the frame will be bright and part of the frame will be very dark. And uh, the reason for that is the part of the frame that has the shutter open in a focal plane system will have, you know, will be getting that flashlight, but the part that is closed will still be exposed. So there will be some image in that area, but it will be considerably darker because it gets much less light. So the advantages really of that leaf shutter in this situation are that you can sync all the way up to about one five hundredth of a second for most cameras. Now, part of the deal, one of the disadvantages of a leaf shutter is that since the lens is opening from the center and closes towards the center, the center of the image actually gets more light. During that travel time, the center of the image tends to get more light, and that gets you... At what we call vignetting. Vignetting means that it's darker at the edges than it is at the center. Now, vignetting can also be uh, affected by the quality of the lens. So just because you see vignetting does not mean that you have a leaf shutter. One of the other things uh, about this is that leaf shutter actually acts as an aperture as it is opening. So one of the things that we know about apertures is that when you have a very small aperture, 
a high number like F22 or F16, you get a much longer depth of field than when you have a wide open aperture, an aperture of say F2 or F2.8, you get a very short depth of field. Well, a leaf shutter, because it travels through the those different openings, it can actually give you a little bit longer of a depth of field than a comparable focal plane shutter aperture would. Now, this is not a big effect, and it's not a it, it's not a terrifically horrible effect, but you will actually over the duration of that exposure, you will get multiple depths of field. So you might have things that are, are a little bit a little bit out of focus, but also have maybe a little bit of sharpness to them at the same time. And that's okay. That's part of what, you know, that's part of what these lenses do. It's a little artifact of that lens. Also, one of the disadvantages of a leaf shutter is that because it does have to travel from a closed to an open back to a closed position, and it's a circle that, that opens up and then closes closes down, um, the top shutter speed is generally limited to about one five hundredth of a second. Now, you can get faster shutter speeds. There are faster shutter speeds that are available in some leaf shutter cameras, but what happens is the lens doesn't end up opening all the way. So Minolta had a camera, the Minolta V3 and the Minolta V2. The Minolta V2 had a top shutter speed of one two thousandth of a second, and the V3 had a top shutter speed of one three thousandth of a second. But the three thousandth of a second could only be achieved if you were stopped down to f16 or f22 that is because that is all the farther that lens would open it would only open a very tiny amount and then shut down very quickly and so you you couldn't get um you know that full if you wanted it to shoot wide open with a fast shutter uh, and that's one of the reasons why you would want a fast shutter is that you could open up your lens that much more. If you wanted to do that, then uh, you you can't do that on this camera. The one three thousandth of a second is only at f sixteen or twenty two. I believe the two thousandth of a second is down to f. Uh, it must be f eleven, and then. One one thousandth of a second is at f eight or or smaller. So uh, it, it's um, it's a very interesting camera, and I've been flirting with this camera for a very long time. Uh, I look at uh, e- I look at uh, V twos mostly on eBay. There were not very many V threes available, uh, not very many made. But I look at the V two on eBay, and I think, oh boy, and I think. I have a hundred other rangefinder cameras. Do I really need this one? Am I really going to be using that shutter speed? But anyway, I just wanted to let you guys know that that is out there. And that's one of the disadvantages. So I'm going to go ahead and take a break. We'll be right back.
So I talked about that first Olympus 35S before the break. And I wanted to use that as a, a as a jumping off point to talk about what the advantages were and what the disadvantages were. But Olympus released a series of cameras uh, and it may be 10 different cameras using the 35 number and either a one, two, or a three letter signifier after that, the, the 35 number. They were released between about 1955 and about 1976. So in 1965, the Olympus 35 LE was released. Now it was the first electronic shutter that communicated with the light meter and the accessory shoe on a camera. So when you were using a flash, and this would be an external flash that you would mount to the accessory shoe on the camera, when you uh, are using that flash, you would focus and the, the focus ring would tell you what your focusing distance is. Then you could set the distance on the flash and take the picture. And then, and the camera would automatically work with that flash. It would get the right amount of light to that picture. So it was a pretty sophisticated system at the time. Two years later, in 1967, they followed up with the Olympus 35 LC. It's similar to the LE, but it had a little bit of a faster lens. It had a 42 millimeter f 1.7 lens. Now, Olympus used that lens on many of these cameras, and it's a particularly sharp lens. And it is really, it's regarded as one of the best lenses ever made. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in, when I talk about the Olympus 35 SP in, in, in just a minute. They followed the 35LC with the 35ECR. Now, the 35ECR was part of a a three-camera series, and it included the EC and the EC2, and those were both zone-focusing cameras. And this is, uh, and I use this camera as an illustration, there were many of these siblings where you would have one rangefinder and one viewfinder camera or zone focusing camera that were sold next to each other. And, you know, the, the rangefinder camera may be 80 or $100 more expensive or maybe $50 more expensive. I'm not really sure what the pricing was at that time. And they would sell these cameras side by side. One would be zone focusing where, you know, if you're a pretty good judge of distance, there's no problem zone focusing a camera, or they would be rangefinder cameras. And rangefinder cameras are easier to use. They're 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 quicker to use and you have to use your brain a little bit less with them. So um, those, you know, the, these cameras were sold side by side often. EC, ECR models were an example of this. So the ECR was the rangefinder version and the EC was the zone focusing Version. Now, these were both very tiny cameras. I, I would consider them pocketable. Um, they're maybe a little bit bigger than, than some other cameras that we would call pocketable, but I would consider them pocketable. They are considerably thicker, but they are about the same width and height as a, a modern smartphone is. Now, these two cameras 
had a fully automatic exposure system. So this is very much a snapshot camera. This is very much the amateur camera. This is very much the travel camera because it relieved you from having to figure out what the exposure would be in any situation. And generally what Olympus used, now I don't know if it, I've never had one of these model cameras, but Olympus used this little flag. There would be a little flag that would pop up and it was a little red flag. And if you were trying to expose a picture and there wasn't enough light, that little red flag would pop up and it would let you know that there was not enough light for that particular picture. Okay, the next camera we're going to talk about really may be one of the best cameras that was ever made. It's the Olympus 35 SP or SPN. There was a, a, a later model named SPN. And it was released in 1969 and they, they made the line through 1976. And this camera was something, it was lost a little bit at this time because 35 millimeter SLRs were really taking over the market. Uh, camera manufacturers were, were selling 35 millimeter SLRs to everybody, uh, whether y- you knew how to run one or not. And this camera and the quality of this camera really got lost in its day. But um, it has probably uh, one of the sharpest lenses ever made. It's a 42 millimeter f1.7. I have had uh, both Olympus 35 SPs and SPNs. They have a couple of faults. So if you see one on eBay that is priced significantly lower, it is probably suffering from one of these two faults. One of them is that the light meter electronics... Uh, actually, it wasn't electronics. It, it, it was, um, you know, resistors and um, uh, those types of things. I'm trying to think of what um, uh, it, it was. I guess that is electronics. Anyway, my my point is that the light meters do go out on these cameras. Now, um, they also were some of those cameras that took the mercury battery, but they don't suffer from from using an alkaline battery that that also fits. So I wouldn't sweat that at all. The other big fault that these cameras had is that the lenses were prone to fungus. And this is actually a knock on a lot of Olympus cameras, is that their lenses are prone to grow fungus. Now, why that is, is debated, and I've heard many explanations And I'm not going to say that one explanation is true or other explanations are not. I'm going to tell you that I do recognize that there are many of these Olympus lenses that are are prone to fungus. In fact, my SPN that I shoot with today has little bits of fungus in it. And you don't see it unless you're shooting directly into the sun. And then those little bits of fungus get light on them and and they can um, distract from, from the uh, from the image. So I really wouldn't worry about that. But this camera is one of those cameras that is, or at least up until a couple of years ago, was a super bargain in that it was cheap and it was good. And in fact, I I love this lens that this camera has. I love this camera so much 
that I made a, I screen printed a t-shirt. I was teaching a, a, a t- I was teaching a screen printing class. And uh, as a demonstration, I did the schematic of the lens elements. Uh, and so I have a t-shirt that has this lens schematic on it. Um, I love it that much. In fact, actually, I'm not a tattoo person, but I'm telling you, I'm, if I were to get a tattoo, I probably might get this schematic for this lens for a tattoo. And that's, you know, once again, I'm not a tattoo person. That's absolutely horrible to my mind. And, uh, and yet I keep thinking, okay, man, I should do that. Cause that is that, yeah, no, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, you get the idea on that. So, um, I want to talk about one more rangefinder in the Olympus rangefinder series, and that is the Olympus XA. The Olympus XA was a bridge between the rangefinder cameras of uh, 1950s through the mid-70s and the autofocus cameras that were right on the horizon, the autofocus point-and-shoot cameras that were probably... Uh, coming down the pike in just a couple of years when this was designed. The XA, the original XA, was released in 1979, and there are five cameras in the XA series. And I'm going to talk about the XA, the original one that was released in 1979, because it's the only rangefinder in the series. Now, it's considerable departure in that it uses a significantly smaller form factor. It has a sliding case that in order to turn it on, it would it had a light meter built in. In order to turn on the light meter and get ready to take the picture, you had to slide this camera open. And it was horizontal left to right slide. And that little plastic cover covered all it covered the lens and it covered the the little focusing element and it really protected this camera quite well and olympus then when they uh came out with their stylus series of point and shoot cameras and i'll talk a lot about the olympus stylus series uh of point and shoot cameras when i get to the point and shoot cameras but they they use that same clamshell and many, many, many different manufacturers adopted it because it protected the lenses so well. You know, these are cameras that are, are meant to be put in a pocket and pocket lint is a problem and dirt and other things that go, you know, you put your keys in and suddenly you're scratching your lens. This was a really, really smart design. It easily fits in a pocket it was a rangefinder. The Olympus XA is a rangefinder. But then there were three models that were zone focusing. The XA2, the XA3, and the XA4 were, were zone focusing. And then also there was an, a focus free model called the XA1. So it had a hyperfocal lens, which means that it would focus anywhere from about, uh, I don't know, eight feet or two and a half meters to infinity and so so anything within that range is going to be in focus the lens is very small but it is also uh it, it's very sharp i've had i had one probably uh, let me think about this probably in 91 92 93 
I had an Olympus XA and I absolutely loved it and took it, took it everywhere. And, but that was during my time when I couldn't afford film and I couldn't afford, uh, developing. So I was very frugal in the number of pictures that I took. Once again, I'm going to split this episode up into two halves so it's manageable for people's commutes. Look for the second half. It should be released very quickly. If you have any questions, I have a once-monthly podcast of questions and answers. If you have a question, go to the website, GetStartedWithFilm.com, and fill out the form. Or send me an email, Graham at GetStartedWithFilm.com, and that's spelled G-R-A-H-A-M at GetStartedWithFilm.com, and put in the subject line whatever the subject of the question is, so I know how to organize each question. If you are on Instagram, you can follow the feed of the show at GetStartedWithFilm. If you hashtag your posts, GetStartedWithFilm, I have a pretty good chance of seeing your work, and I might feature it in the show's feed. Our music comes from filmmusic.io. This track is Poofy Real by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com, and it's licensed through Creative Commons.